When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, we love Burger King grilled dogs. They're made with 100% beef and they're 100%. Mm, they're so good they make us want to sing like... I can't believe it. Burger King made a grilled dog. Made with 100% beef. Flame grilled anytime you want. This July 4th weekend, put down the tongs, step away from the grill, and get to Burger King to try a grilled dog for just a dollar. Ask for the dollar grilled dog deal and get a classic grilled dog for a dollar. Only at Burger King. At participating restaurants on July 2nd and 3rd, limit five per transaction while supplies last. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel LaRue, your host. So happy to have you with us this week. Have a great guest, Matt Steinmetz. He's a longtime Warriors reporter. He's worked for the Contra Costa Times and Comcast Sportsnet Bay Area, covering the Warriors. I've known him for years. He was covering the team when I started covering them five seasons ago. Great guy, knows the NBA, basketball, and particularly the Warriors insanely well. And it was really fun for me personally because while Matt and I have talked quite a bit over the years, we often used to sit near each other on press row. We haven't as much recently due to his other commitments, so a lot of this works as a conversation with two people who follow this team incredibly closely and know a lot of the ins and outs, and it's so much fun to do that. So we go in a lot of different directions from talking about the importance of adding Steve Blake to Bogut's role on defense, the long-term and short-term ramifications of what's going to happen with Clay Thompson and Harrison Barnes, and Mark Jackson's situation. And then what was a real highlight for me is that Matt displayed what he thinks of as the different way to defend Stephen Curry. It's something that he's never put out anywhere else. It's a first-timer on this. I'd never heard it before. Greatly intrigued by it. That's at about the hour mark. So I would definitely recommend listening to that. It's novel. It's interesting. I think it makes a lot of sense. So the conversation runs a little bit over an hour. Hope you like it. It was an absolute blast to do. Love talking to Matt. Thanks so much for coming on. No problem. Thanks for having me, Dad. So let's start with looking more at the season as a whole. Have the Warriors exceeded your expectations, underperformed, or have they generally met them? I think they've generally met them. 
You know, they, they won 47 games last year. I thought they had a shot at 50. A lot of people were talking 55, and that's still not out of the picture. But the reason I thought it was going to be tough to take a significant jump, you know, up to 55, was it would be more modern, is just because, uh, you know, I just felt like Jack and Landry made such tangible contributions to 47 wins that it was going to be very difficult to duplicate that. Maybe they could duplicate it, but to build on it. To the extent of getting 55 wins, you know, they, I, I thought they could improve, and I think they have. And I think they're probably going to win about 50 or so, you know, maybe a little more, you know, maybe a little less if they get shaky. So I, I think they've generally met them. But I think, and, you know, maybe you could answer this better, is, for some reason, I think the Warrior fan was thinking more maybe like 55, you know, third or fourth. Yeah, I think that's a fair case. I think there was some expectation that I think largely related to them actually winning a playoff series, that even though right. they won it as a lower seed, right. that they would that they would become this gangbusters. And also because they played well against the Spurs. I think you could make an argument that other than the Heat, of the teams that the Spurs faced in the playoffs, the Warriors gave them the most run, and if they hadn't blown game one, that would have been a very different series. Well, yeah, and I also just think that heading into the season, talk, you know, they were certainly the trendy pick, and they didn't do anything to downplay that. So if you do the math, and they were sixth last year, you know, and there was talk about, I mean, let's face it, there was talk about, you know, is this a championship team? Well, if they're asking that question, that certainly leads you to believe that they thought they'd be one of the top teams of the conference. And at six, that is probably why I do think it feels disappointing. I thought getting up to three and still even getting a top seed, I just always thought it was going to be difficult because of the team still going to have to leapfrog. And that's a really good point, and also the point you brought up both now and on Twitter previously is that you're going to talk about replacing the production from Jared Jack and Landry, that it would have even been difficult for them to reproduce their production. You know what? That is one of my main points. Yes, I do not blame the Golden State Warriors one iota for not re-signing those guys. Yeah, I mean, the problem with Jared, yeah, I, I can't say. If you look at his numbers, I believe the only year he rivaled the numbers kind of he had last year was that year in Toronto. They were, whatever, last year's numbers were clearly one of the best of his career. And so you got to now try to replace Jared Jack, a Jared Jack career year almost, or certainly one of the top two or three years of his career. Well, even if you brought Jared Jack back, he wasn't going to be able to do that. I thought from that, from the Landry Jack perspective, they were, gonna, you know, they were in a hole now. They obviously get Andre Iguodala. So how do you factor that in? How do you factor in? I still think if they win 50 games this year, people might say, oh, see, they didn't miss Landry and Jack. I disagree. They, they're always going to miss Landry and Jack. But what they got from Iguodala, or, you know, I think Bogut's a big, big factor this year. You know, did anybody really expect him to be as good as he's been when he's played? What I'm saying is they've compensated for those two guys in a variety of ways, probably a lot to me, which are intangible. And good for them because it kind of means that they, you know, you took two big pieces off their team and you still got a little better. Now, naturally, some of that, I think, is development. When you're talking about guys like Clay and Curry and Barnes, where they are in their careers, they're going to ascend naturally. But still, you know, it's just something to consider. 
Yeah, the only criticism beyond signing Marie Spates the way that they did that I had with their offseason was that they didn't try to bring in any low risk or whatever primary ball handler guy to back up Steph. They eventually recently fixed that with Steve Blake, but that might have cost them a couple of games over the short term because the offense was so disastrous whenever Curry was off the floor. Yeah, I mean, what, what I think, look, we could spend hours on the point guard, not point guard debate with Curry. He's a point guard, he's not a point guard. The bottom line is, even if he's a point guard, it benefits Curry. And more importantly, it benefits your team. Even if he even if he is a point guard, it still benefits your team and Curry to not have him play exclusively there. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I think that Jackson at certain points last year overused the crutch that was playing Jack with Curry, especially with the defensive flaws of that. Right. But Steph is a great off-the-ball player, and you need to use that to keep other teams honest. And the other really interesting thing, depending on who you're playing him off of, is that some point guards defensively have trouble following a guy off the ball. They lose interest a little bit and things like that. And so you're getting teams at a disadvantage in that way, and you're handling them differently. The other thing is that no matter what, you always want to have at least one guy on the floor who can reliably handle the ball. And as we've seen with the Spurs, having more than one, as long as they have the right ego, isn't a problem at all. In fact, it's a huge benefit. Look, to me, it's, let's say Steph Curry, with the average of, let's say, 38 minutes a game. The real issue is, to me, in the long term, let's say over the course of a season, approximately how many of those 38 minutes would you like him to play at two guard? And in the short term, it's how you measure that game by game. Maybe some days it might be 30 three minutes at point five at two guard. There might be other games where it's 12 minutes at point guard, 28 at two guard. I think for him, if he's going to play 38 minutes a game, I got to give him somebody else playing the point half the game or a little less. So in other words, that way he can play 24, 26 at one and then 12, 14 at two. And that's why I think Blake is just for two years, I've been thinking, God, who would that guy be? Blake is always a guy I've thought of. Well, Blake, you know, Blake would be perfect. And now they got, to me, Blake is a huge, I can't believe the Lakers gifted him to the Warriors like they did. But to me, the way I I look at the Warriors is, I think they were going to go into every, they were playing Oklahoma City or San Antonio, Clippers, you know, even Houston. Portland's their most favorable matchup, no doubt, I think. But with Blake, I don't know that you can count him out. You know, with Blake, I think they can beat anybody. They can still lose to anybody, but they're more likely now to beat anybody with Blake because he's going to be very important for them. Huge. Yeah, he will be. And the other major factor with that for me relates to the amount of minutes that Steph plays. I'm of the belief that under the current NBA system where they play back-to-backs and three out of four in certain circumstances, that no player should average more than 35 a game in the regular season. Obviously, in the postseason, they should play more. They You let them go then. But the problem with the Warriors this season has been that Jackson, as a former point guard, understandably wants to have a quality guy who can run the, run the offense on the floor. And he doesn't trust anybody else who was on the team as before last week so his job is to win basketball games so if you want to do that he's going to play Steph and it's crazy to me that Clay has played as many minutes as he had too and so what Blake gives them 
at the worst, and I think he's far better than this as you do, he's a security blanket that can allow Jackson to say, okay, I can sit Steph for five to ten minutes and the team isn't going to go down a ditch. And that's a huge thing when the expectations on Mark Jackson individually are so high. To me, when when you look at Steph Curry and you think of all the things he can do well, I often try to view a great player, whether they play for the Warriors or not, from the other side. So it's like, okay, what does Curry do the worst? What's the weakest part of his game? What's among the weakest part of his game? Well, to me, it's that he's susceptible to pressure. And I think that he has a tendency, obviously, during monster defensive possessions against really good teams. And when the, you know, it happened against San Antonio, when the, the crowd's getting revved up and the other team is really beginning to swarm defensively and Curry's being guarded by six, 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 seven wiry, long players, and everybody on the court has an eye on Curry, and they're, you know, they're looking to get into the passing lane. And that happens when the stakes of a game are extremely high. So if you think about that, I'm not saying Steph Curry isn't a great player. Of course he's a great player. But if during those times, you're going to have Steve Blake. So you don't have to ask Steph Curry at the most important time of a game to actually now have to do what he's weakest at for minutes at a time. That's why, to me, Steve Blake could be incredible for the Warriors in terms of what, and I don't know how you're really going to be able to measure how much better that makes them, but I just think it's one of those things you're going to notice because the Warriors, they got a little frenzied last year. A lot of that's being on a young team, but Blake is a great find for that type of thing, I think. And the other factor in that that I've thought about a lot recently is that while the Warriors have a lot of guys now with Iguodala and Lee and Clay who can move the ball well, particularly to open people, they do not have a ton of people who can create very well for other people. David Lee is solid at creating yeah. for himself, and he's a good passer, but he's not great at creating for other people in that purest sense. So no. what some teams do against the Warriors, and when they're smart, is you trap Steph and you force other people to create the offense. And so the benefit of having Blake is that you actually have somebody else who can do that so that if another team goes in that direction and also the other factor with Steph is that they need to develop a better system offensively in terms of if a team wants to try ball denial on him and teams don't do that enough it's a really big flaw with the Warriors that if you force the ball out of his hand at certain situations the other players are more than complicit to not have him touch the ball but there's a reason for that. And see, that's why there's a small danger. That's why, you know, I, I do believe in the point guard, and I'm not a I – mean, the point guard's a leading scorer. But, you know, what that can sometimes mean is so Curry brings the ball down the court and when he makes a pass. Well, Clay Thompson is a scorer. I mean, he, he's not a passer. So Clay Thompson is going to look to be offensive-minded. He's going to look for his, as they say. And then you throw David Lee in there, too. You know, David Lee is going to get his shot. And so, you know, then maybe you get around to Iguodala, and, you know, he's more of kind of a flow guy. See what's going I mean, what I'm saying is the next thing you know, you're not really looking for your score because you don't have a lot of guys who are equipped to do that. That's kind of what point guards are good at to find that score, to find that guy. So that's always a conundrum when your point guards, you know, your leading scorer as well as a point guard. And now you throw in a two guard who doesn't pass well, 
you know, Lee and Bogut are great passers, but sometimes, you know, when the ball gets to them, I mean, they got to make a quick pass. Then they do. They hit cutters and they hit backdoor guys, but those are usually like one count type of plays. You know, it's not where they're moving or treating or, or they're holding it a little longer and finding steps coming around the screen. And the other thing is they didn't really, they don't really have anybody on the team who excels at passing the ball to a guy coming off the screen except Curry. So Curry does it for Clay, and Curry can do it for other guys. You know, that's kind of an art. That's a skill. Well, guess what? Blake can do that. Blake knows how to hit Curry with a nice pass so that if he just got enough space, he can get a shot up. Iguodala and Clay and even David Lee, not the strength of their games. And so they, you know, those little split seconds are the difference between good shots and bad shots. That's an excellent point. And the other really fascinating revelation with this year's team is that they've been so much better defensively than offensively. And there are scheme reasons why I think their offense hasn't been as good as it could. And you brought up a great point with how Blake can help that. But their defense, while it has been inconsistent from game to game, on the aggregate has been very good this year. Yeah, I'm aware of the numbers, and they are. They're definitely better. Personally, I think that's overblown. I know there's going to be numbers that are going to tell me differently, but they're obviously an above-average defensive team, but I, I still don't think they're a good or a great defensive team. And the, and the main reason I say that is because I think in general, and maybe this is just semantics, I'm blown away by how poorly some teams score. When the Golden State Warriors play the Chicago Bulls, I, I just – blown away at how little the Bulls can score. And so you get the Warriors taking one step up the defensive ladder, but then you play them against the Chicago Bulls, and all of a sudden that's a huge step. They've gotten better because some of those Eastern teams are terrible. They just can't score. And so those numbers tend to obviously make the numbers favor the defense. But I'm not not acknowledging that they're a better defensive team, but I think even in the first round of the playoff, chances are the team they play, the other team's going to have a better defense than them. I And I'll, I'll almost say regardless of what the numbers say. You know what I mean? Yeah, I get what you mean. I think that they're a step away from elite because what I think of with an elite defense is that they can take stuff away and you can't get it back. If you think about what the Pacers can do and what the Bulls can do. And the other difference with the Warriors is that when they're on, they're a strong defense. They're not, again, their peak is not that elite shutdown defense. Even like Miami is when everything's working for them, which this year they haven't done a lot of, but they don't have to yet. They're playing for a different time of year. But the challenge with this Warriors team, and this is true in all facets of the game, but especially on defense, is that they have these moments, and the moments can be as short as a couple of minutes, they can be as long as a half, where that intensity and that quality is completely gone. And I think of that the first half against Toronto at Oracle, so it's not just a home road thing. They're a team that is reasonably capable on offense. They're not dominant. They're, they're good. And they torch the Warriors for a half and then the Warriors basically they played solid enough defense that their insane offense at that point was able to get them in and to me while those obviously can happen with any team they happen far too frequently with this team for me to be comfortable with it when we're talking about a playoff series yeah what what I think is that there's just no way around it at the end of the day Stephen Curry is an offensive player Clay Thompson is an offensive player and David Lee is an offensive player. And depending on how harsh you want to be, you're in a ballroom, you could say 
Hey, Curry and David Lee, we're talking about two of the worst defenders at their position in the NBA. Let's be honest. Clay Thompson. If Clay Thompson isn't guarding the point guard, he can't stay attached. He's a two guard who can't t- stay attached to other two guards. Now, Bogut. I'm just presenting a hypothetical, exaggerated view of the Warriors' defense from, like, a skeptic. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, but what they do have is clearly Iguodala is there's a non-measurable there with his defense. That is a positive that's hard to calculate. I also submit, and I know there's probably people out there that watch more games than me. You know, I'll give you Hibbert, but when he's playing, there ain't nobody who's protecting the rim like Andrew Bogut has protected the rim for the Warriors. If you've watched games this year with the Warriors, when Andrew Bogut is playing and playing well, which has been most of the time this year, he is directly responsible for, I would say, four to six plays at the rim during the course of a game where he prevents a basket and he triggers some kind of offensive opportunity. Not that they take advantage all the time, but it's usually some kind of offensive opportunity in which the Warriors have an innate advantage because it's usually off a miss or a fast break or a a ball they gain possession of, not under the basket, but out toward the foul line, for example. Who am I missing other than Bogut and maybe Hibber? I would say that Noah is a very good defender, yeah. and Noah's in the conversation. When he's healthy, Marcus Gasol is a very good defender in terms of protecting the rim and things like that, but it's a small list. And the other factor in that, I, I wrote earlier in the year that you could make a very good argument to me that Bogut is the second most important player on the Warriors, because yeah, sure. Steph, is, yeah. Steph is indispensable. I think there's no real argument there, and I think they've made him more indispensable by the way that they've managed the roster and the way that they use him, but what Bogut does is just so incredibly valuable because it's the failsafe. You know, when Steph or David, when David misses a rotation or something like that, instead of it being a bucket like it has been at many times in the year, and Festus did a pretty good job last year, but there are things that he just can't do. You know, he's right. young, he's learning the game and everything. Bogut catches more mistakes. Iguodala prevents them from being made, but Bogut prevents them from being catastrophic. Yeah. And that's in certain situations, the most important part of a good defense. Because if every mistake is killer, then any team is going to be shaky. And that's, what, to me, what makes Miami so impressive, is that Miami has, at those moments, strong defense while they play Bosch at center. And Bosch is a fine defensive center. It's not a huge criticism, like, oh, he's garbage and they're still doing well. It's that they don't have that archetype of the rim defender, but the Warriors have it with him. And the other huge thing that it does is it moves a guy like Jermaine O'Neal and theoretically Festus, if and when he comes back, to the role where they're mostly having to do that against backups. If you're managing the rotations correctly, you let Bogut have it in the pivotal moments, and then you have whoever of the other guys is healthy have an easier job when the other team's studs are generally off the floor. Yeah. You know, you one thing that I thought of when you're saying that is, and I think I said it a couple times earlier, you know, on this podcast, and it's not like when we refer to the Warriors as a young team, that's not really accurate. They have some young players, but they're not really a young team because if you look at, let's face it, they have six solid players. Would you agree with that? I know, I know you're going to say, well, Draymond Green, I don't ever see Draymond Green being a starter in the NBA. So, to me, he's always going to be kind of a role player. So I think they have six important guys. Two of those guys are young, Clay Thompson 
and Barnes, and then you got Iguodala, Lee, and Bogut. Well, they're not young. Those guys have got some mileage on them. You can make a case that each of those three players are either right at their prime or beginning in a, a dissension. And then you have Curry. Quiet. Yeah, he's young, but quietly in his fifth year. Fifth year already for him. You know, you forget that. So, it's you know, they're not sitting with a really young roster, and half their core isn't really young. I think that they may find that, let's just say they, they lose in the first round this year. Can you basically bring back the same team and expect to be better? Yeah, it's an excellent question. And people have lost sight of the fact that they made this big shift when they, really when they acquired Bogut. And while I have absolutely no criticism of that acquisition, he's a wonderful player, they were going to go with this older core. And the other big issue with it is one that you alluded to, which is of timing. And it's that if you go with the logic that from a purely physical perspective, Iguodala, Lee, and Bogut will presumably be at the best equal to what they were the previous year. And I think that's a fair assumption that you, the other guys are getting better, but also the older players are staying on the books. They're not coming off for a couple of years. I, each one of them has at least two more years. And so by the point that they're coming off, you're going to be paying whatever of the younger players that are still remaining. And I would include Steph in this because obviously if he plays the way he has been, he's going to get a pay increase. Right. So, and you know what? The, and he may, you know, he may ask for that extension at the first possible moment he can get it, and they should rightfully give it to him because, well, I mean, we don't want to get into the Charlotte thing, but there's always kind of going to be the Charlotte thing. Curry's a guy you're always going to want to have under contract for as long as you can possibly have him under contract, you know, as long as the CBA allows, I guess is what I'm saying. I wonder what the next step is for them. That's what I wonder. I, I think that you trade David Lee, you know, that would be the most logical thing to do. You try to get off his money. But I know why people say you got to lose him to get to the next level. But, man, there are just games when he, like, he wins you a lot of games. To kind of during the regular season that you might not win without him just because he's putting up pretty big numbers, you know, and outplaying the other power forward. So I just wonder what the next move is for him. Yeah, and the other thing that has changed, I was, for years, I mean, I was somebody who criticized the Lee acquisition when it happened because I've covered the Warriors that long, and so have you, that the problem is that when you get to a certain circumstance cap-wise, you have to think about what are you going to do with the money. And the Warriors have committed money to Bogut, to Iguodala, and to Curry in the way that under the current collective bargaining agreement, they couldn't do much if all they did was offload David Lee's salary. If, let's say, that were theoretically possible, let's say somebody had a trade accept and they said, we'll take him. Right. You're not in a situation where you can go, hey, let's throw that money towards Dwight Howard because you're in a very different circumstance. And they can't do that. And while I do think that there are players that would be better than David Lee at the power forward position for what they want, the challenge is how do you get those people? Because right. the Warriors have a really strange situation in terms of assets because the only people that are considered real assets on their team are guys that they want to keep. So are you going to completely remake your team by, let's say it's giving up Clay Thompson or Harrison Barnes, and I'm not sure Barnes is enough right now to completely remake the power forward position. I like Harrison. I think that he might have a role in this team. But if, you're, if your thing is we want to make a huge upgrade on David Lee, it's certainly possible that there are human beings that can do that. But Let me ask you about Harrison real quick. Because I, I, think, I think some people, what do you think? 
optimist think he is? Well, it's, it's been really fun. A uh, guy that I'm friendly with, Nate Duncan, who writes for Basketball Insiders, he wrote that he doesn't think Harrison Barnes is ever going to be an all-star. And apparently he got that's all I, this that's, flack that's for That's what it. I thought. I mean, yeah. I, I thought that, that he's not, like, coming out, I had heard, yeah, you know, a good, good career would be like a Karan Butler. To me, Karan Butler's a nice player, had a nice career. I think he played maybe one all-star game, maybe none, maybe two, but – the thing about Barnes, I just think people are missing the boat. It's like, when did, yeah, oh, San Antonio. When, now somebody may be able to point out, him. when did he thrive? Well, he thrived when he got the mismatches because Parker couldn't guard Curry. To me, Harrison Barnes matched up against other small forwards. Yeah, I just run up and down the league and the players. Yeah, he's fine. He's okay. I don't, I don't know why people think he's going to be an all-star or perennial all-star. I, I don't I don't know, especially the way the team's constructed now. It's hard for Curry, Thompson, and Lee take a lot of shots. I think it's impossible for a fourth guy to consistently emerge. It's not going to happen. That fourth guy doesn't get enough consistently each game, so it's going to be a matter of who's shooting it well on a given day. And you hope, you know, Iguodala is doing it one day. And, and, and which when you do get into trouble is when Clay's taking – 18 shots and only making six because now it's like, you know, Lee's usually efficient. Curry's clearly efficient. But when Clay isn't, oh boy, now you need your guys who are taking seven shots to be making five of them tonight. That's hard. Yeah. The thing with Harrison is that I was high, pretty high on him coming into the draft because I always think that people who have natural talent are always better to bet on than those without it. And he has the ability to be a good player. The problem is that he doesn't have the mentality, and he doesn't have the depth of game. And you could think about this in a lot of different ways. But for me, it's if he has the ball in his hands, and you tell him, get the team two points, whether it's you or somebody else, at this point in his career, he doesn't do that reliably. And he settles too often, and he hasn't gotten to the point yet where he creates the space that can either generate points for him or for others. And he can get there. I, I think there's a possibility. But the problem is, the longer a period of time that does not happen, the less likely it is that it will be a part of his ceiling. Because with a lot of those guys, and I think of somebody like James Harden, you see it quickly. You don't see a guy develop that real shiftiness, even let's say Jamal Crawford. Jamal Crawford has a lot of flaws as a player, but he can get his, and when he wants to, he can create for other people. And we saw that when he was a rookie. Saw it when he was in college. You know, we saw it when he was young. And well, I'm, not sure, that, I'm not sure Harrison will ever be that kind of guy. Yeah, it, it's possibly because not. I don't, I don't think he handles it well enough. To me, he's a guy who was – when did everybody feel Harrison Barnes was going to be – one of the most gifted players ever out of Ames, Iowa, when he was like, what, 11 or 12 years old? Yeah, I would say when he was 16, 17. Yeah, obviously he was clearly, at the very latest, he was one of the most sought-after North Carolina recruits since Jordan or whatever. There were comparisons, all that crap. So I'm thinking about a high school kid who was an All-American, you know, who was just a great player in high school got recruited by North Carolina, basically into a pro program at North Carolina. Now he's in the NBA. I just think he's seen so much, and he's just, even though he's only a second-year pro, it's actually like he's been in the game for 10 years. And I just don't think 
he is a killer. I think he's already been catered to. I think he's already been disillusioned. I think, you know, I think he's gone through every possible thing that a pro goes through in terms of, you know what I mean, how to handle it and all that. And I just, I just don't think that he's, he's almost a little too cynical about it all, kind of. And so I never see him excelling. I also don't think he's got a personality where he's going to dictate to others what might need to go on. Yeah, the interesting the interesting guy that I was thinking about when you were giving that description is somebody who's relatively similar in age, but who has gone through a different path, particularly since the NBA, is Lance Stevenson. Lance Stevenson okay. was an immensely talented kid, but the difference is Lance Stevenson has the mentality that I'm going to go after everybody, I'm going to get mine, and it was trying to figure out how to work that into a team concept that Indiana had to do, and that's what made him so valuable. That is, in some ways, the opposite of what Harrison Barnes means. Well, not, to, not that Harrison's this guy, clearly, but what about Paul George? I mean, he was, he'd be a guy I think would be like step, step, big step, big step. And now, you know what I mean? So, yeah. Paul George always had right. swagger, and he always had – Harrison Barnes is a high-level athlete. I don't think he's an elite athlete at the NBA level. I don't think anybody's going to make that argument anymore. Paul George is a better athlete. And that made him a better defender. And that's been the big surprise for me with Harrison is that he is more limited defensively in terms of, I think about what the positions that a guy can competently defend. And what I hoped with him was that he'd be a natural three who could slide in both directions as need be. And he can do that a little bit. The problem is he is more out of place handling traditional twos and traditional fours than I hoped he would be. Because what happens then is that you get into these situations where he has a little bit of versatility. So if there's a clear-cut reason to do it, you can move him. But you're not going to put him, even in really short spurts, on those really kind of interesting matchups because he doesn't have it yet. And guys can get better defensively, so he certainly can. But he doesn't have that Paul George kind of next-level a little bit more of the freak athletically. I mean, Paul George is a LeBron, but he's a remarkable athlete. Sure. And also, well, I think, Paul I think Harrison's got enough athleticism, but he would need to have all the other parts to, you know, he'd need to be a killer, whatever, that swagger you talked about. And he doesn't have that. So now you start pairing up some of those things. Yeah, see, I just, I think Harrison's a nice player. I, you know, but I, I never thought he would be a perennial all star. Yeah. Oh, and for the record, while we were talking, I looked it up and Karan Butler made two all star games. So, okay. yeah, I'd say, that's, I'd say that's a fair ceiling for Harrison right now. And the nice thing about professional basketball is that you can see a ceiling for a guy like a reasonable level, and they can blow through it if they work really hard and develop their game because these guys are all really talented individuals. And so if they put in the time and they, they a light switch turns on, and it does happen, they can become better than that. You know, if he all of a sudden becomes the guy who can figure out that jab step that can get past a guy and he figures yeah. out – when I'm here, I can do it. He could do that, but it just you, it's hard to predict it when you don't see it. Well, and also, I almost want to say, God forbid, you know, God forbid one of these franchises that's trying to lose right now looks at Harrison Barnes and says, you know what? We get this guy, Harrison Barnes. I mean, he could get us point. This guy is, they're not using him right, they're stuck. And then you trade for Harrison Barnes and expect him to be your best or second best player. His numbers are going to go up but your team is not going to be very good. You know what I mean? 
I mean, if you agree, I mean, if you give if you give Harrison Barnes fifteen shots a game or whatever, he's gonna score. He could get some points. He's got some big nights too. But he's probably not gonna be consistent. And you know, the other thing about Harrison is uh, one reason I might never see him as a one or two is because you can't rely on him when you really need it to go get his own shot. You know, I hear that I hear that about Curry a lot. Third quarter, it's like, oh, man, Curry's only taking five shots. Well, the truly great ones are going to get a shot. You know, you can always get your shot. You cannot be a great player in the NBA constantly taking nine shots a game in important games. I mean, you cannot be an important player, you know, I mean, unless you're whatever, maybe Bill Russell, but even – but he, you know what I'm saying. So mm-hmm. I don't know that I could ever rely on Harrison Barnes to, you know, average 16 shots a game or whatever it's going to take because some nights it just seems like he's playing basketball, not really playing to win. He's just kind of out there playing. Yeah, and the other really important part of this for the Warriors is that I think they need to make a quicker decision on him than some people are thinking because there are still teams out there that feel that he can be that number one or number two guy. And if you have a team like that and you disagree with that estimation of him, you have to strike while the iron is hot because if they're willing to compensate you for thinking of him at that level and you don't see him that way, you have to take advantage of that because if you're the Warriors, there's a very small chance that he's going to get the opportunity to prove that value. And so you're putting yourself in a really awkward situation because if you're not going to ask him to do that much, are you going to give him an extension without knowing where, where his role is on this team long term? That's way problem, too dangerous for me. Well, the problem is that they've got Iguodala, Clay Thompson, and Barnes. And whether you want to agree with it or not, you know, there are two, you're talking about some twos or threes there. Yeah, Barnes can put, you know what I'm saying. I'm saying that, you know, one of these guys has to go, you would think, because you can't pay Iguodal 11, Clay 10, and Barnes 9. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so you're, you're going to have to make a decision there. And so to me, it does come down to Clay Thompson or Harrison Barnes. And to me, I'm starting to almost think maybe neither. Because they're both, to me, going to command more money than they might kind of deserve. You know, Clay gets some great numbers. I don't know. I, you know, that's going to be an interesting one. That's going to be an it, interesting one. It really is. That. And the other challenge with it for Clay is that he's wildly inconsistent on offense, both in terms of the amount of shots he takes and the amount of shots he makes. I think he's a solid defensive player. Not great, but solid. But the problem is he doesn't pass the ball and he doesn't rebound. He's one of the worst rebounders in the league. So the big challenge with Clay is that when he's not scoring, he's obviously getting some benefit because he's still getting defensive attention, but he's not doing as much to help you. In a lot team. of games, he doesn't help you. If he's not scoring, yes. he's just not helping you. And that's no terrifying doubt. when you want to be a good team because if you have a guy who, let's say even four out of four out of six games, he's going to give you a solid game. But if those other two, he's a negative, then in a let's say a playoff series, that's terrifying. Yeah. Because what are you going to do then if if you don't do that? And the nice thing for the Warriors in terms of the neither question, which I'm getting closer to as well, is the huge benefit of Draymond Green is that he can fill at the very worst that 
third perimeter spot. So that would mean theoretically non-starter, still playing meaningful minutes, comes into the main lineup if somebody's hurt. He's really good in that role, and as long as he doesn't want starter money or a starter role, then you, you've you got that. So then you have to figure out the other spots. And while in some ways it's easier to figure out the backup spots and the starter spots, it does give them a nice piece of flexibility because they can move any one of those, the other three, Barnes, Clay, or Iguodala, and not get back a, a swingman in return. So if you want to use one of them in a trade to upgrade a power forward or to maybe to get the next center, if you don't think it's a Zeely for after Bogut's hurt, then you can do that. You know, well, if you want to do that through Clay. But you can't upgrade a power forward unless you trade Lee. You know what I mean? You yeah, agreed. You can't power forward in and, and Lee still be on the team. Agreed, especially given the, the dynamics of the team. I agree with that entirely. But the, the idea is that there's a nice piece of flexibility that you can move one of them without saying, okay, we have to get this in return. Because you see that with some teams where they want to move a guy, but they create an absence at the position that they just moved the guy. And so then they're exactly. scrambling for something exactly. to fit in. I mean, let's face but it, the deal is Lee and either Barnes or Thompson for a power forward, the right mm-hmm. kind of power forward. I mean, that is the deal, correct? That, or if you could do do Lee and something for, like, let's say it's Clay. You say you do Lee and Clay for a shooting guard asset who you think is better than him for the long term, and then you yeah, figure something yeah, yeah, else yeah. out for power forward. Uh, for the shooting guard spot? Well, because obviously the, the power forward everybody thinks would be Love. You trade Lee and Thompson and you get Kevin Love, right? Now that, that's, right. That's, a, that's a crazy pipe dream to me. I think, okay, I think that the, the more, more important... Guard? Uh, I mean, I don't know offhand. I'd have to really – I think it would be a younger like a guy. Bradley with a Beal? Yeah, if the Wizards would do that, which they won't. But that's kind of the idea, is to get a guy who might be a better long-term fit, who's probably a little bit younger. So you'd be going for something like that, hoping that there's a team that's desperate and would be interested in, in getting two immediate contributors over a long-term guy. It could even be somebody from this draft class, depending on how that works out. But – it's also amazing to me that we've gone through this long in a conversation without talking too much about Mark Jackson. So I, f- I feel like we should do that at least a little bit. All right. So I've written previously, and I stand by it wholeheartedly, that at the present, Mark Jackson represents the ceiling of this team. Do you agree with that? Here's what I think. I think that, and I, and I said this from, from day one, that, yes, they feel the loss of Mike Malone, and they feel the loss of Bob Byer. And that's to not, you know, I, I, I'm a believer in, in, in intangibles and things like that. I think the staff, I think if you look at the Golden State Warriors, you make a case. The coaching staff, not a great one. It's not very experienced. Not a lot of gravitas over there. You know, you got Mark Jackson, who, first of all, he's, he's only coached for two and a half years. And secondly, while he portrays a leader, there are a lot of people out there that aren't sold on Mark Jackson, and rightfully so. And they need to, you know, they. What I'm saying is, I don't think the coaching staff is the strength of this team. I really don't. I tell you what, I think there are certain guys in the NBA, coaches and assistant coaches, who can look out onto the floor and they see five guys on each team, and they just boom, snap of a finger. Just like that, in a snap of a finger, they recognize something. They see something. They, they go three steps ahead. Well, if he's in there, we do this, they do that. Here's where we like, – and the quintessential guy doing that was Don Nelson. Don Nelson could do that. But Greg Popovich can do that. 
I, I actually believe Spolster can do that. I, and, and, I, and what I also believe is I believe most teams have a guy like that. You know, and I thought Mike, Mike Malone to me is kind of a guy like that. I don't think the Warriors have anybody close to that on their staff, not even resembling that. Adele Harris. I'm trying to think of even Stan, Jeff Van Gundy, a technician, a full-on strategist where that's where they excel. They don't have anybody like that on the team. Nova. Yeah, and and the way that I I or, think about I coaching. The team, I mean on the coaching staff. On the coaching staff. The way that I think about it is that there's a small group of coaches that are clear positives. And so a lot of the men that you just mentioned are in that group. I would throw in Thibodeau and, and various oh, others. Definitely. Jeff Hornacek has done a fabulous job. I think Hornacek, yeah. and he, it might be more as a motivator than a tactician, but whatever he's doing, it's incredible. The guys and then you Clifford have, in, in Charlotte. Yes, yes. You know what I mean? Clifford, their teams yeah. adhere to a, it's just a tighter discipline. But, mm-hmm. but there's, there are other facets, too, but that's one of them. Yeah. And so, so you have those guys that are clear positives, and then you have a small group because generally they only get a couple of jobs that are more clear negatives, that don't know what they're doing, and that screw things up, and that's fine. Then there's this wide group in the middle that they're just kind of there. So they're not providing any of those big pluses. They're generally not providing as many of the big minuses. And the issue with Jackson is that I felt like there was always upside potential because when you have somebody that's an unknown, you don't know if they're going to be that big positive, that big negative, or something in the middle. What I think we've learned is that he's not going to be that big positive and probably not going to be that big negative. So the question becomes, why should they commit to him? Because you'd rather roll the dice on something. Obviously, you'd rather get a proven yes. A proven good positive is infinitely better. But why commit to somebody who, if they're going to hit that level, it's going to be years from now. It's not going to be soon. To me, one of the one of the things that nobody's big unwritten story or what I thought would be a hotter topic, especially in lieu of how the season's gone, is the whole Mark Jackson issue and where he stands on his contract. I mean, basically, no matter what happens this year, but you, you can't dismiss what's happening happening this year and because it's important. I, I think push is coming to shove this off season. I don't really see how it can't um, with Mark Jackson. And I just think that if, if you follow me along the path that, path that something's probably going to happen this summer or after the season, to me, when I take that next step, you know, obviously not knowing some unknowables, I don't know that he's going to be back. He wanted an extension after he got the team to the playoffs last year. He tried to, you know, strike with the, when the iron's hot and rip up the initial four-year deal. Instead, they picked up the fourth-year option. They had a team option for that year. They picked that up right there. So already he's like, all right, he's just going to pick that option up. Man, you go to the playoffs second time in 20 years, 19 years. Come on, you're not going to rip. Okay, you're just going to give me the option. All right, now we're going through year three. You know he's not happy about the expectations the front office created. You know the front office isn't happy because they think the team should be a 55-win team. And so now you have that natural, these natural questions that are occurring. Guy, you know what? Is Mark Jackson really the right guy? Is he this? Yeah. Questions. Well, obviously, the proof's going to be in the postseason. Okay, so I look at what's most likely to happen in the postseason. Well, I don't think the Warriors are going to have home court. And I think if they don't have home court, even though I think the flake acquisition really helps them, I just think on balance – 
If you don't have home court, you might lose in the first round. Well, then, okay, let's imagine that. Now they lose in the first round. Well, now what do you do? Mark Jackson's got one more year. What do you do? You bring him yeah. back for the one year, the one year Lionel Hollins. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I, don't, I, I, I don't. I do. I don't know that I want Mark Jackson back with just one year remaining. You got to understand, Mark Jackson has been. And he's basketball royalty, you know. I mean, he, he really is. And he, he's been in the league a long time. It's like certain old school guys, I mean, you know, you don't it's, look at it as a little bit of disrespect if you're going into that last year and you haven't given him, you know what I mean, a vote of confidence or a hand, you know what I mean? So I, I just think that there's a lot to play out with Mark Jackson. And it's kind of, nobody's really talking about how fragile it is, really. Yeah, it's a very interesting situation in terms of that, and it could end up being a situation where I think you could say unrealistically high expectations might actually work in the long-term favor of management, because if I don't think he's the right fit long-term for a very different reason than how many games the team has won, but if they come to that conclusion because they for some reason saw this as a 55-win team, which it is not, then at least they get to the same point. But the big revelation to me with the Warriors in terms of this, and I wrote I wrote a piece on this for Real GM a couple weeks ago, is there are two big questions for management. One big question is, are they willing to pay the luxury tax and will they actually do it? So a year from now, will we be sitting here right after the trade deadline saying, hey, look at that, the Warriors are actually going to pay the luxury tax. Thank the you. second big question is, what kind of statement do they want to make with Mark Jackson? Because in many ways, he was their first signature hire. And you talk about players, you have to take the players that are available in the draft and signing and all that. But with him, they had not every choice, but a lot of choices, and they chose him. And even though Lakeup said at the time that they fired Keith Smart because he didn't have the experience, and then they hired Mark Jackson, and you could justify that even though it went against what he said because of that, that he was their guy. And so they need to tell the league if he is not their guy, considering how popular Jackson is, I think they need to explain why. And that's going to be a very delicate balance in terms of how the franchise is perceived going forward. No doubt, because Mark Jackson kind of got some, you know, that's what I mean. He's, he's got clout. I mean, he's a guy who you don't want him going around telling people that this is a joke of an organization. And I'm not, not saying, I mean, we're so far from this, it's kind of ridiculous. But you know what I'm saying. I mean, you're right about the delicate situation. You don't want Mark Jackson walking away from here feeling disrespected because, you know, he's a player in this league. He is. So Sorry. we'll see. And even beyond the concept of him feeling disrespected, it's the perception. And so you think about yeah. what happened to what happened to Memphis in terms of Lionel Hollins. You talk about Lionel Hollins. They made the conference finals, though I personally feel like that should have an asterisk by it because the reason they made the conference finals is because Russell Westbrook got hurt. You know, they they would have gotten yeah. worked pretty heavily by that Thunder team if they had been healthy. They got that benefit. More praise to them that they cleaned yeah. out the Clippers and were able to get that benefit. But can you imagine how different that vitriol will be in certain pockets of the league if the Warriors make the playoffs, whether they win in the first round or lose in the first round, and do not bring back Mark Jackson, sure. a guy who is well-known and well-liked, that you can do that. It just takes real big guts, and it takes the knowledge and the execution to make the right hire after that. But you and so what you that Lionel Hollins and George Carl were too more respected coaches than Mark Jackson is right now. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, you could make that argument, but I think that it it plays a little bit differently in the league because okay. those guys there was more writing there was more writing on the wall that there were more structural problems in terms of fit. With Mark yeah. Jackson, it's always been we support him full strength, we want to do that, and there's not going to be a change at the top. You know, when Ujiri left, there was a a shift in everything with the Nuggets, and so that made a difference. There was an ownership change in Memphis. The Warriors would basically be saying, the same people chose this guy, right. and it didn't work out. And so what, what happens then is you need to pick the right replacement, and those people exist. You know, I, I'm somebody who thinks that Mark Jackson should not be the long-term coach of the Warriors. I clearly believe that. But you're making a statement, not only to the league, but in some ways, more importantly, to both your present season ticket holders and the season ticket holders, the people who could be prospective ones, if and when you move into San Francisco, to say, this is an organization that is worth your time, your money, and your energy. And they can do that. Absolutely. There are many ways to do that. But it will be the single largest decision that a Warriors organization has had to make in at least my lifetime. <laughs> Granted, that's because the they haven't coach? had to make it. Because of what it means to the franchise. Because if they, you know, if they do this, all this big hype of we want more than that, and then they strike out on four different guys, then it's going to be like, this team doesn't know what they're doing. There can be a narrative, and the other big factor with that is free agents. Because we don't know how close they got to Dwight. I have no idea. I don't have inside sources. I don't have anything with that. But I think we can all agree that. If this team wants to win championships, you need to be able to get the guy. And it might be Steph, but it might need to be somebody to play with him. And in all likelihood, you're going to need to have somebody who will come willingly. Whether you're talking about specifically LeBron or whether it be a guy like Kevin Love, you know, whoever, they're going to only go somewhere where they see the situation as being good enough. And that's what Miami had going for it, was that Miami oh, had Pat you. Riley. Miami had that. And so the the thing is, when you're dealing with players, particularly, but coaches too, you have to be number one on their list because being number two and being number four doesn't matter. That's because a, LeBron James is only going to go to his number one team because why would he sell himself short? He doesn't need to. And every single truly elite player is in that circumstance. So it's kind of, in a way, the Ricky Bobby situation of if you're not first, you're last. And why that situation matters is that it will take a lot of people and go, okay, they're not first. And then they're going to – I have this narrative in my head that I've been seeing for years of the possibility that they'll be one of those teams that's always in the dance that's never chosen at the end of the night. You know, that, obviously that's a nice improvement from where they were in the Cohan years. That's a, that's a nice improvement. But if you're going to try to make yourself into something more than that, as it appears that ownership and management really wants to, and they should, they certainly should, then you have to make these kinds of big decisions right early because otherwise, everybody's going to be skeptical until they do work. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. It's going to be interesting. So we've talked a little bit about it, but what do you expect for the rest of this season in terms of, let's say, general placement in the East? I don't want any numbers or anything. Just kind of where do you see them fitting in? Uh, I don't see them jumping into the first round. I'm sorry, you know, home court in the first round. I think they're like three behind the Clippers or something like that. Three. Three's not an insignificant amount of, of games. It's not insurmountable, but it's you know it's not like baseball. Three games is like seven games in baseball. But I, I really do like the Blake acquisition. I really do. So to me, the Blake acquisition, you know, whatever they finish forty nine, finish fifty and thirty two, finish fifth and play the Rockets or something. They can beat any team. They could also lose that first round series. 
But what I can't see them doing is running the table because I still think they've got some flaws. Could they, you know, I, I don't see them getting past Oklahoma City. I disagree with people that they're right there. You know, they're there with the Spurs. I don't think they can beat the Spurs in a seven-game series, assuming both teams are healthy. I just don't because at the end of the day, the Spurs have those two guys they can kind of drape on Curry. You know, the six seven, you know, whether it's Leonard or whether it's Green, you know. And well and tactically they have the best coach in the world. Yeah, so that's a that, huge that benefit. Too. And then and then and then they're like good enough to play the other guys solid because Duncan's so smart and Litter gives them enough size. And yeah. So I, I don't think they can beat the Spurs and I think Portland would be a would be their best first round matchup. And I'm I'm gonna say by far. Because I think if they play Portland, they're they're a favorite to me. The Clippers, I say they're their next most favorable matchup after Portland. Because I just don't think the Warriors think that much of of, of the Clippers. And I also think that Curry now has played well enough against Chris Paul enough time that it, it kind of gives the Warriors confidence. I don't think the Clippers are that smart. I just really don't. I mean, I Houston just I, – I think Houston gives them problems. I just mm-hmm. think Houston gives them problems. So I'd see yeah. them as an underdog against the Amateurs and Oklahoma City, obviously. Yeah. I, I think that the Warriors would have a puncher's chance in a lot of series. I think that that's – and that's nice. You know, that's good. But, yeah, and, and the thing is that you can't win three series in a row where basically you have a puncher's chance. It doesn't happen very often. You know, maybe you get into a Memphis situation where your second opponent gets right. weakened well, somehow and you get into that. Yeah. that. But it wouldn't be the expectation that they would do that. And so right. I think you bring up a great point with Portland. And I think in some ways the worst thing that happened to the Warriors is Portland falling back to earth because that would have been a very useful 3-6 series for them. Right. And and that, that would have opened things up a little bit. But the Clippers would be a fascinating matchup because the other big thing with, with L.A. is that when Jared Dudley hasn't been playing well, and that's been this whole season, their defense really relies on one player, and that one player is DeAndre Jordan. And he's done much better than I expected, and he's been coached up by Doc, and he deserves credit for how much better he's been. But that's not enough to stop a team. And their offense has a lot of good pieces, and Chris Paul's magnificent. I think he's the best point guard on the planet. But they don't have that second and third piece that can reliably beat you. And in some ways, it's kind of like the Warriors, in in the sense that if you can take away what they do best, I don't have the faith that everything else can work well. Also, Bogut, I think, could do a really nice job in that series, as he did when they played the Clippers at Oracle and stomped them. Here's the bottom line to me with that series. And you tell me who I'm leaving out. If Jared Dudley and Redick, if they're not playing or they're not a factor, the Warriors are going to beat them because you've got to be smart to beat the Warriors. You have to be a smart team. You have to to lock in to how dangerous they are behind that line. And I'm sorry, I don't trust Matt Barnes, and I don't trust Jamal Crawford to know that. I do Jared Dudley. I, could, I, I, I trust him to take away a three-point shot from a guy he's defending. You know, J.J. Redick, I trust him to do that. Who, Chris Paul, I trust him to do that. What I'm saying is you got to – to me, the reason that the Warriors didn't beat the Spurs last year was because – that's why I think a series 
works against the Warriors is, you know, you play the Warriors one time, and, you know, Curry's out there, you know, knocking them down from 27, and Clay's raising up from 26, and then Barnes hits one, and Isabella. It takes a minute or two to get it through your skull that these guys are different than anybody else you play against in the league. People don't understand. When, when you play defense, when you're setting up defensively in a half court, a lot of times even in a transition, yes, you're looking up, you're backpedaling and looking up the floor at the players, but you're looking also for the three-point line. You're looking for the three-point line because that's the gauge you use as a defensive player to kind of assess the range the other guys walk it into. That line is obsolete against Curry and Thompson because they go deeper than the line. It's like when you play a lefty. It's just different. You've got to focus more, you, you know, and, and the more you play lefties, like the more suited you are. And that's what I think happened against the Spurs last year. By game five or game six, it finally got to the point where they had on a, just so much length on the perimeter that it affected Curry and Jack and even Clay Thompson, and their three-point efficiency dropped. And to me, if you take away the three-point line from Steph Curry, okay, and he, and he beats you, and, he get, and now you get him to play inside the arc, you won. You already won. You won the defensive possession because, of, because if he hits one of those one-foot floaters, take your hat off. If he steps one foot inside the three-point line and knocks down a 21-footer, dynamite. That's better than a three-pointer. And if he tries to get to the rim, super. Let him try to put in a tough rainbow or a floater. You know, he might make them. He's a great player. He's going to make some. But he's going to get less and less efficient the closer he gets to the basket trying to score a bucket against bigger players. So it takes a mindset of take the three point, take the three pointer away from Curry. But when he gets back into the, when he gets into the lane, don't freak out. Don't drop off Clay Thompson. Don't suck in. Sucking in is the worst you can do because then he's going to kick out to Clay Thompson or a three point shooter. So you got instead of instead of sucking in, you gotta you gotta kind of flood out a little. You gotta say, go ahead, Steph, go take a floater, or or go try to hit David Lee for a little twelve footer. We're making you play inside the circle. I think that's basically what happened against San Antonio, and I think it's not an easy game plan to execute, but it becomes more and more possible the more you see Golden State as an opponent. That's the way I would try to beat them. Yeah, and you're exactly right. There's a piece that I've been, I don't want to say the word afraid, but I've been hesitant to write for years, and it's that I feel that as presently constituted, and as you've mentioned before, Blake changes this a little bit. There's a template to beating the Warriors, and the Spurs figured out a part of it last year, and it hasn't gotten really that different with adding Iguodala because while he is a much better player, the strategy when you are on defense is basically the same. And the other big factor in it is something we've talked about before is that why you don't help off the other guys is that if he passes the ball there, you're still in position to prevent those guys from creating for other people because that's something that they generally don't do anyway. So if mm-hmm. you can take away the shots that are created for them, Steph might score 35, but the rest of the team might not do anything. And they won't get in rhythm, and they won't get anything else. I'll I'll end it on this. I'll throw you, I'll give you my revolutionary, admittedly a touch wacky, defensive scheme. And it's how to defend Steph Curry. And the mere fact 
fact that I'm sharing, I'm, I'm sharing this with you for the first time, the mere fact that I'm going to tell you this defense means that I think so much about Steph Curry when I'm thinking about basketball as a player that I'm actually trying to think how you can defend this guy because he's obviously turned into an offensive player that I never dreamed he'd turn into. All right, so here it is. Here's my wacky idea with how you guard Steph Curry. You guard him from behind. Keep in mind, it's a, it's a touch ludicrous, so bear with me. You allow him to catch the ball in the backcourt, and as he brings the ball up court, you actually trail him. You are trailing him, forcing him. He must look over his shoulder. He absolutely must. What that's going to obviously do over time is create a five-on-four situation in which Curry's going to push the ball up the court, probably in a fairly swift manner. Well, keep in mind you're playing five-on-four, Okay, well, what's, what's, the, what's the biggest danger with Steph Curry? It's that three-point shot. Well, I maintain that Steph Curry, his strength is assessing where the defense is playing when they're in front of him, and he knows exactly how much room he needs to get off a shot. And you think you're playing Steph Curry close enough, he knows you're not playing him close enough, and he can get his shot off. He's a master at that. Well, what if he knows he's got a guy kind of trailing him and running from behind? He's going to pull up from that three-point line, and you know what? Ask any player. There's nothing more disconcerting than thinking there might be a guy coming from behind taking a swipe at your shot. So what's he going to do? He's going to penetrate inside that line. Okay, mission accomplished. I don't care what he does inside there. Now, once he gets inside there, can you devise – some kind of scheme to lessen the percentage. I don't know. What do you think, man? I'm way too intrigued by that. I think there's a there's a genius to it because it acknowledges his strengths, but also it acknowledges his weaknesses because if you don't give him the opportunity to cr- kind of create that space for himself in the space in front of him, then his instinct is going to be interesting. It might be to push forward, but if you then don't allow that to create space for other people, and you just manage the help in a way that it's less obtrusive, he might just have trouble with that. That's really, and I I really like that. Here's the other thing. At the very least, what you're doing is you're making Stephen Curry make quick decisions. He's going to have to make some plays. He's going to have to make some plays. He's going to have to make a lot of plays. He's going to have to, it's going to be strange. Now, he's good enough that he's going to make plays. They're going to be stretched. He's going to make plays. But you know what? You may force him into more mistakes. You may force him into more costly mistakes. You might lessen his three-point attempts. It's fascinating to measure, you know, what you could theoretically, what it may do, what it might not do. But anyway, there you go. That's how much people think. People think I hate on Steph Curry. I think so much of Steph Curry that I try to devise a way defend this guy because he's so so incredible of a score wow well thank you so much for taking time i love that idea and i'd love to have you on anytime you want to talk talk warriors or anything else all right danny that was fun man thanks again to matt for coming on really appreciate it you can follow him on twitter his handle is at mms steinmetz and that is mms underscore S-T-E-I-N-M-E-T-Z. It was great to go really in-depth on a team. It was fun with the Warriors, and since I've known Matt for years, it works on that level because he has such a good knowledge of the team and the game. 
and it helps inspire me for what will be a bigger project for the Real GM Radio podcast, and happy to lay it out for the first time for you listeners that made it all the way through, and I really appreciate that. And it's built off of an idea that I've been doing columns for for Real GM for years, which is called The Eliminated. And the idea is to go a little bit more in-depth on teams as they're kind of sliding out of relevance for that season. So for some teams, it's really early. For some teams, it's in the playoffs. Some teams, it's even in the NBA Finals, one team. And what I want to do, my ideal situation, would be to do about 10 minutes with somebody who has intricate knowledge of the team right around that time. So if you're somebody who has a a writer or a thinker on your team, whether they're affiliated with a blog, a TV show, whatever, then that you think would be a really good person to represent your team, let me know or let RealGM know. But for me, you can email it to daniel.larue at realgm.com or you can hit me up on Twitter at DannyLarue, that's D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. It can be somebody that you read, somebody that you like, and hey, it can be yourself, and I'll read through material, I'll talk to people, and I want to have somebody for every team. I have contacts at various points in the league, so I will use those as well, but I would love to have suggestions, love to have insight, because that's what makes this better, and that's how you find the next great guest, as opposed to the great ones that I've already had. So thank you so much for taking the time. Really looking forward to the playoff push, the draft push, the NCAA tournament. Going to have some great material on that. Thanks, take care, and make it a great day. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like, Swedish techno confusing. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to Geico.com and you could save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your mood.